Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week, I spoke with Brett Weinstein. Brett is a professor of biology, excuse me, I'm in the question, evolutionary theorist and well-known political and cultural commentator. He hosts the Dark Horse podcast with his wife Heather. His new book, A Hunt, A Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life, is available to pre-order now. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review there. Yeah, do it. It helps us and we will read them out. For example, here's this one. Russell, you're great. Five stars. And that's, I, I just wrote that there. If you'd like to listen to the rest of this podcast and all of my weekly Under the Skin podcasts, all you have to do is subscribe to Luminary on Apple Podcasts or download the Luminary app. Also, I have a brand new meditation podcast called Above the Noise. It's me guiding a meditation. In this part, me and Brett Weinstein discuss consciousness, the nature of consciousness. What's the point of evolved consciousness? That's what I'm talking about with Brett Weinstein. Here I am talking about it now. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. What, Brett, is the utility for evolved consciousness in the model that you describe? And how could it be? And like, you know, we can see what wings are doing. And I'm sure there were points in the journey of wings and indeed eyes where it's like it wasn't like it was going next the eyelash, then the lens. But consciousness has provided you know a it seems a field for all but like you know again I, I, like how how would and why would mutation and adaptation provide such an all-encompassing phenomena and and a, a phenomenon so prone to screwy errors right like a wing tends to be really good for flying consciousness can get you into trouble Right, Every day. because wings can too, technically. But um, all right, let me let me address that. I will say that this is um, Heather and I have a chapter on consciousness in our upcoming book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century, which you'll and be coming just, on to discuss in a, a matter of, of of hours. Imagine that. Um, so anyway, that will be marvelous, and we should revisit this uh, with, Go on, with Heather present. But um, so I, I want to make two points. One, I think. The, the thing you have to do if you really want consciousness to be tractable. And again, you might not, right? I'm not saying do this, right? But I'm saying if you decide, hey, you know, it bugs me. I don't, I want to know what consciousness might be from an evolutionary perspective. And I don't like the idea that, well, it's a hard problem, right? Which is what they call it. I would argue that the thing people do wrong is they imagine that consciousness is fundamentally an individual process and it is obvious why they imagine that we have individual consciousness it is the only consciousness that we we as individuals have direct verifiable contact with right in fact it's the only thing descartes was able to satisfactorily prove at the ground floor was that he must exist because he was conscious of being so the point is because the experience of individual consciousness is so vivid, we see it as primary. It does not add up that it would be primary, right? Why would you have a subjective experience of the universe at all? So many creatures get away with no 
subjective experience of the universe at all. And in fact, they have advantages over ones that have this experience and can be confused by it. So the way to, to get to a rigorous explanation is to understand if you ask yourself, what is consciousness, right? Not a trick question. What do people mean when they say that, right? I would argue, and Heather and I argue in our book, that it overlaps that fraction of cognition that is packaged for exchange between individuals, right? They're thoughts that you could convey. Those are your conscious thoughts. Unconscious or subconscious thoughts are ones that you couldn't convey. So if somebody says penny for your thoughts and you can hand it over, that's a conscious thought. So if we agree that sort of painting with a broad brush, if we exclude the outliers, the ways that people use the term that uh, are you know, very idiosyncratic, then why would we have this intense overlap between the communication of something and the subjective experience of that something? And the answer is because the thing that makes human beings so utterly singular is our ability to share a concept. So what you and I are doing right now, I am vibrating air molecules. And because you and I have a language that is derived from a, an ancestral common language, you have a pretty freaking good idea what it is that I'm saying. Maybe not with precision, but we could establish if I say something truly surprising like um, a grapefruit limousine, right? Maybe grapefruit limousine is something nobody's ever said before. But if I say grapefruit limousine to you and then you draw a picture of what I said, we'll discover that although your picture won't look exactly like the one in my mind, that I did convey something just by vibrating air molecules, right? That's a pretty special trick. I vibrate the air molecules, a little membrane in, in your skull wobbles back and forth, and you get an abstract concept transmitted to you with a certain degree of fidelity. Why would we have that ability? Well, we have that ability because our minds, though our brains are actually entirely independent of each other, our minds can be joined. And there's a very good reason to join them. We join them because if you and I, instead of idly talking on a podcast about the meaning of the universe, were hunter-gatherers trying to figure out what the frick we're going to eat when our food sources failed, our pooling, our cognitive capacity might allow us to figure something out where otherwise, if we were just left with the sum of your cognition and my cognition, but we couldn't plug them into each other, we might starve. So the point is the most fundamental and almost certainly from our perspective, original version of consciousness is collective, but we don't see it that way because the experience of collective consciousness is not vivid the same way individual consciousness is. So the real question is why do we have individual consciousness? If collective consciousness is the reason that it evolved and the reason is uh, can be stated as the emergent consciousness is more powerful than the sum of the individual consciousnesses put together, right? That that gives advantage or gave advantage to our ancestors. Then there's a question of, okay, now that you have a subjective experience that evolved for the purpose of exchanging abstractions in order to get an emergent solution to some problem. Is there any purpose that you as an individual could put that same, that same uh, module to? And the answer is yes. Anytime you have an argument with yourself about what to do or what to think, you are effectively creating a sort of pseudo emergent 
discussion inside your head, almost literally. And that also has a value. I mean, who amongst us has not talked themselves into something or out of something, either to their benefit or sometimes to their detriment? But basic point is, if you understand that consciousness probably started as a collective activity and then individual consciousness evolved on top of that, it makes a lot of sense. It's not a hard problem. The collective component is what I find most fascinating. And for me, at least given that this is what, how I see it, Brett, that however advanced we are in a particular discipline, we are dealing ultimately in the amplification of sensory information that is native sensory information, sight, sound, whatever. I believe beyond the instrumental faculty that we are granted as a species are different strata of data that are available, not directly perceptible due to the limitations of the dashboard of instruments available to us, but occasionally glimpsed, sometimes in circumstances that we might regard as paranormal or supernatural. And for me, they too pertain to this idea of a collective consciousness of which our individual experience is a kind of uh, point of attention. There's a sort of Ayurvedic um, myth or allegory of maybe you know it because of the extent of your studies known as Indra's net that Indra's net is cast across all phenomena known and unknown and at the point where the threads cross there is a jewel for me I regard consciousness as expressed through humanity but present beyond humanity and of course the idea that this can't be proven in a sense it, is just on that massive pile of other things that can't be proven either because of the limitations of our senses. And here is where I would try to somehow uh, circuitously tether, fractally, if as is necessary, the two sort of two parts of our conversation. The initial one, the, the vehement intention to intention to control a cultural myth in order to dominate resources to dominate attention to dominate the nature of reality and the attempt to posit that reality can never be dominated and controlled it is too vast there are too many potential realities that could be imagined into being at any point because we are connected to something limitless that has purpose and meaning and power that goes beyond the perpetuation of molecular data through time in itself a potential animalistic interpretation of something that perhaps could not be enshrined so simply again if we were to have access to an intelligence just one percent evolved to where we are let alone five or ten percent as like, um, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson came in here and m memorably said that, you know, in that 2% difference between us and chimps or culture or architecture or glory or God or really, you know, and to envisage 2% beyond. I'm not like stuck on a mystery, you know, that it needs to be a particular type of elves in a particular type of bejeweled gown. I'm just like want us to hold space for the possibility of the limitless and how that might impact us. And even a rather, you know, sort oddly um what do i say um sort of inappropriate to re to regard buddhism as sort of stoic 
let's just say sort of somewhat ascetic and um, mythically disciplined ideology like Buddhism still in even in like spite of its sort of like the comfortable denial of a sort of a central parental force still says you know reincarnation that consciousness itself seems to be actualizing itself through different individuals and that the you know like well the, the thing that i most agreed with that resonated most with me uh, that, that you said was that that we you know construct and mimic the kind of tribal communications that would have been necessary in within the confines of our own imagination as a sort of, sort of as a component part of our persona the persona we present the persona that we feel both kind of born of the tension of this um, pra practical skill set to uh, consider and communicate. All of these, though, for me, feel like fragments of something sort of far greater and but like you know you recognize the and i certainly do the impossibility of my task because i am advocating for mystery i'm advocating for the unknowable and the indefinable to a you know an evolutionary biologist no 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 uh am i Am I correct that neither of us has taken hallucinogenic drugs before this conversation? <laughs> no, like, uh, I'm just drinking some psilocybin. All no, right. No, well, no, okay. That explains uh, it. If you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Luminary and Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin.